0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. I just want to start with a uh, a story that happened to me this week. Um, nothing huge, just it just kind of makes me smile. I was uh, on, uh, if you know the neighborhood on, on, on Beverly, just taking a left turn on Pico. you can imagine that. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. But it was a couple of cars wait for the left turn. And, you know, I'm just kind of sitting in my car and just want to keep my mind busy. So there's a There's a game that I sometimes play with myself where I try to guess the weather. I try to guess the the, the exact temperature. And so I'm sitting in the car and I can't, you know, quite know what it is outside. So, you know, I I lower the window and I stick my hand outside the window and, you know, with my hand up in the air and I'm kind of like feeling the air just to get a better sense of just what the exact temperature is. And I think to myself, you know, I'm always a few degrees off. I mean... Like a, like a golf handicap almost. You know, let me just add three degrees, you know, just to even it out. And I'd say, you know, I think it's 71 degrees. And then I look at the dashboard and it says 71 degrees. I nailed it. It doesn't happen that often that I get the exact temperature right. And so I'm sort of happy. And then the next moment, the car in front of me, I see the guy rolls down the window and he puts out his hand just as I had and he waves. And he's waving to me. And I realized it's my cousin in front of me, which I hadn't realized before. And he thought I was waving to him. <laughs> he didn't, you know, so I, I didn't have a good chance to really explain to him. No, 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 I was just feeling the air to guess the temperature. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that act, semi-bizarre practice on my part, you know, was interpreted as a hello, and quite appropriately so, since there was my cousin right there, right? So he waves back. So you know, they are very communication between people can be very mysterious. You know, sometimes we think we're communicating and we're not communicating. So often, time, and that's really one of the kind of one of the uh, kind of the tragedies of the human condition. Really, is that often we think we are communicating and we're not communicating. And 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 sometimes even worse, perhaps. But a sort of a another aspect of it is that we don't think that we're we don't mean to communicate something else, or we're not communicating something else, and yet that message is sometimes sent. And and so it's uh, it's this very very difficult interplay, um, the the ability to actually express yourself and to be understood my My father was a psychologist. One of the reasons I think why he was such a successful therapist was because when he'd hit the keyword in a sentence, he would use five different synonyms for it. He would say, "You know, just to make something up to make up an example i, I see you 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 seem you seem tired uh, you haven't had much sleep you you're exhausted you, you' you've been drained of strength something like that so so each word, which was the, the crucial word, he would use five different terms for it and, and then wouldn't move on to the sentence until he, he, he felt as though he had really given all the different facets of, of, of what he was trying to express. And as a result, I think he was a very, very good communicator and people really understood what he was trying to say. And um, anyway, probably the most, um, probably the most tragic level of communication or the highest form of miscommunication is between us and God and between God and us. And, uh, you know, I was thinking of an example in another uh, context, but, but I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I know I have. Have you ever tried to kiss a child who doesn't want to be kissed? <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's a very frustrating experience. You're, you're like putting your arms around them and they're wrestling and they're fighting you. And all you want to do is kiss them. You know, you're trying to put a kiss on them and they're, they're fighting you. And it's it's very hard. And it seems to me like that's us and God all the time. That God wants to kiss us and we're there going, no, no don't, get up. you know, you we're, know, we're fighting them off, you know. So kiss God back, kiss Him back. You know, this is this is an incredible world that we're in. And but it's broken in a lot of ways. It's broken in a lot of ways. And that's not um, that's not permanent. That's that's our job as um, as I've come to think of it. And to me, this is a resonant analogy because I, I know I've been to bad parties in my life. Um, and so I'm sure you have too. So imagine you're at a bad party and everyone's been to a bad party at least once in their life. And you always think, you know, how come I have to be at this bad party? This party is so bad. I'm so miserable right now and (laughs) just my luck. And then. But the thing is, is a, a lot of people, that's this world. You see, a lot of people think I'm in this world. This world is so broken. But what, what, what we don't understand is we're in this world because it's broken. It's not our bad luck to be in a broken world. We're in a broken world in order to fix this world. In other words, that's why we're here. That, that's why the party is bad. In order for you to fix the party and make it good. That's why you're here. It's not just bad luck, bad circumstances. Oh, I could have been at that party, which would have been a good party. Right? No, you're here in order to fix it. So the brokenness of the world is simultaneously a bummer, because it carries with it all sorts of torment uh, on different levels. But at the same time, though, it's an incredible investiture of, of, of power and respect and dignity that God has made you his partner in terms of rectifying and fixing everything. The entire cosmos, literally. Literally the entire cosmos. And I'll going to get to that in a in a bit just how far reaching this idea is, but I learned something um, i 've been learning something over the last few days and i 'm kind of just at the beginning of it but it 's something that's absolutely uh, gripped me and um, that's uh, that 's the the Medsaba in creation and the the medhraaba are are basically the well, it's a collection of the rabbis' deepest insights on on the creation of the world, and and it's just it's phenomenal what's there and what's always been there. Now, I remember hearing a story from from Reb Shlomo, and I, I won't tell the whole story, and I, I don't remember the names or anything like that. I'll just tell you just the very beginning of the story, which was there was a great Hasidic master, you know, a great incredible. Master of Torah and all of its secrets and everything like that, and he finds out that um, basically his his best friend, who has another session with this with their rebbe with this with this holy master, has learned from his master the secrets of tachias amesim resurrection of the dead how to bring the dead back to life. And so he, you know, he goes up to the Rebbe, who he's also, you know, a favored student of his, and he says to him, how come you never taught me the the secrets of Amaysim, of resurrection of the dead? And the Rebbe said back to him, you never asked. Anyway, that's the beginning of the story. Um, I remember the next part of the story. But, anyway, let's uh, get back to the point. So, so the point is, is that the Medrash Rabbah on creation has just been sitting there. <laughs> I mean, it's learned by some people, but it's not one of those things that you're told you're not allowed to learn or anything like that. I mean, and it's it's an incredible treasure chest of phenomenal insights on the world. So one of the things that that I was looking into Because this is what kind of got me into it. Um, And like I say, just to repeat, I'm just really at the very beginning of this. But um, there's a very interesting uh, phrase used by the Torah on the sixth day of creation, which is there's been a refrain that's been repeated um, throughout um, the beginning of of the first several days, which is that God saw it and it was good. And God saw it and it was good and God saw it and it was good. It, It says this several times. But on the sixth day... When, after uh, God creates human beings, the only time, actually, it says, and God saw it and it was very good. Tov Ma'od. Ma'od means very. In fact, um, one of the interesting things, if you understand Ma'od to mean very, which it does mean, if you apply that, you can apply that in kind of like maybe a, a, a semi novel way to. Um, after we say Shema, we declare God's oneness, that God is everything, the totality of all reality. And then we say V'yahavta, uh, that you should love God. with es Hashem you should love God your God with all of your heart. Bechol Nafshacha, with all of your soul. Right? Meaning that if the circumstances call for it, we would even die for God. What we call Me'odecha. And with all of our, uh, well, is is, would be strength, right? But it also means money, by the way. Um, Interestingly, just as a side point, um, as a side point, you would think that there would be orders of magnitude if you list different qualities. Usually speaking, you go up so that the last one is even greater than the previous one. So it says you should love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, meaning to say you'd even die for God if, if the circumstances called for it. And then it says with all of your money. Right. So seemingly, seemingly money should go before death. Right. So they ask, why does money go last? And they said, because many people would rather die than give up their money. That's an amazing insight into human nature. That the rabbis had well, actually it's in the Torah, so it's God's own insight. That on some level we have a love of money, then that doesn't have to be a negative thing, by the way, because with money you can do great things. I'm not I'm not slamming money at all. But nonetheless, that one's love for money can can be such that it even trumps one's own life, you know, and this is expressed actually it's it's one of the all-time classic jokes. I won't uh, do service to it or justice to it, but I think that in its day it got the longest laugh in radio uh, radio history. Which was Benny Benny uh, Jack Benny, rather, and he was known as a famous cheap guy. That was his comic persona, right? And so, in an alley, a guy pulls a gun on him and says to him, "Your money or your life?" And he's just standing there, and he says, "You know, your money or your life?" And he says. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> That's amazing. That's like, it's exactly, it's exactly the commentary on this, on this verse in the Torah. It's, a, it's an amazing joke, you know? And by the way, I heard from someone who heard from someone in comedy circles who was actually, knew the people who wrote that joke. And it just, again, as an aside, what's the history of that joke? So, so it was written by a comedy team, Right? And um, and what happened was one of the writers was lying on the couch, and the other writer, his partner, said to him, "Was you know they were trying to write jokes, right? And so he, one of them, as often happens in when you write comedy as a group, someone will propose a what's called the, the setup, right? It's like the initial part of the joke, and then you kind of brainstorm on ideas, what's the funniest payoff for the joke, the funniest punchline." So he says. He says, he comes up with a good setup, right? He says, your money or your life. And then he doesn't hear a response, you know, because they want to pitch. He doesn't hear a response. And then he says again, your money or your life. And he says, well, and the guy who was on the couch was preoccupied in his own thought. And he said back to him, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. (laughs) And then the first guy said, that's it. (laughs) It's hilarious, you know. So, the joke was actually written, so to speak, by accident, you know? And it was the greatest joke in, in radio history. It was known to be the the all-time funniest joke, in terms of the, the amount of laughter that it got. So, anyway. But, um... But the point is that... That... Well, I've forgotten what the point is, honestly. <laughs> but... Very good, thank you. Tov ma'od, thank you. Good for you guys. I'm I'm uh, impressed. So, another way to understand me'odecha, I've just told you the classic understanding of it. That's the classic understanding of it. But ma'od, as in tov ma'od, as in God saying it's very good, ma'od means very. So, another way, more of a homiletical way, but another way of understanding that you should love God, becho Odecha would be with all of your very... Meaning with all of your ma'od, meaning to say with all of your heart, with all of your passion, you should love God. And that would be another way of understanding this escalating um, you know, ladder of attachment to God. So with all of your ma'od, with all of your veriness, so to speak. Um, so, So the rabbis give many fascinating explanations of what this word very means and why it's on the sixth day. One of the things, and it's, it's, it's deep, and it's, it's, there's, there's a lot here, but I'm just going to give you just a couple of highlights. One of the interesting things about the word ma'od is it's actually the same letters, the exact same letters as the word adam, which means a human being. And of course, the human being is created that same day, the sixth day, that God says it was very good. So ma'od is the exact same letters as adam, the word very is the word is the exact same word as a human being. Ma'od and Adam. So so there are different ways to understand that. So the most directly, thing the Rabbah says is that, um, that that human beings are very good. That everything, all the work of creation was good, but the human being is very good. Meaning to say that this was the purpose of creation. This is the climax, so to speak, of creation is the creation of the human being. And so we can do quite a bit now very is interpreted as it goes on in different ways and um, this is not from the midrashrappa right now but in terms of understanding our own our own nature see it's interesting that the word for human being and very are are the same because one of the difficulties of being alive, so to speak, of being a human being, of being this very, right? We're, we're all verys, quote unquote, is calibrating what the proper response to a situation is. See, a lot of times we we miss the mark. And the word chet, which is translated, unfortunately, in English as sin, because that has all sorts of connotations, chet actually means to miss, right? And in, I learned from Rabbi David Aaron that that in in, in, in modern Israel, um, that if you you know soccer is very big, if you shoot for the goal and you miss, everyone yells out the word "chet." So so that's in English is sin, but in in Hebrew means you were off the mark. So that's that's that that's what it is. Like for instance, if someone if someone does something that's not sort of in, in harmony with, with the universe, with, with God's will, with the, with the Torah, basically what they've done is, they've done a little too much, or they've done a little too little. They've missed, and that's what the, that's what the whole concept of, of, of actually keeping the mitzvah is, that you're actually sort of like on the wavelength of, of your own humanity at that point. You know, in, in, the ultimate, in the ultimate sense, that you're sort of like vibrating at the frequency that, 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 that you're in tune, if you will. You know, if you think of it from the musical standpoint, we're all musical notes also, right? Because we're all letters in the Torah, and each letter has a musical note associated with it. So to be in tune means that you are modulating your ma'od, your very, to the proper frequency, Right? Like, for instance, you know, if you sort of like, if you're married and you're too friendly, that's ma'od in a wrong way, right? (laughs) But you don't want to be rude either. So, you know, you modulate, you know, everything is modulation. But it's it's not so easy to do because, and this is part of the, what I was saying ties into part of the difficulty of actually communicating. Because sometimes you have great feelings inside of you and you don't know how to express them at all and you can't even express them. You know? I, uh, I, 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 I wanted to. Uh, well, it's too long a story. So let me get further into this notion of Tov Ma'od. So the actual discussion of Tov Ma'od actually begins with a beautiful thing. Because they're going to start to talk about things about creation, like basically secrets of creation. Right? But the the chapter that, that, that begins this discussion, Antov um, Ma'od, begins like this. It says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Right? Vayer elokim, escho asha asa v'gomar. So it says that Rabbi Levy began his expo- exposition, this, his explanation of this, and he quotes something from Mishlei, from uh, Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, right, the wisest of people. So it says Proverbs twenty-five two. okay, if you want to look it up, and it says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of a king to examine a matter. So what does that mean and how is he applying it? So so the glory of God is that he hides certain things and that there are certain things which are beyond the human being's ability to comprehend. Because remember, as, as expansive and as amazing as we are as human beings, as creations of God, God puts a part of himself inside of us. We've got this godly soul. As amazing as we are, relative to God, we're very finite. Because God is the ultimate and infinite. So we're finite relative to God. So part of the greatness of God, part of the glory of God, is that he's able to conceal a matter. Meaning to say there are certain things we're never going to understand. Right? But, it says, it continues, it's the glory of a king to examine a matter. And on some level, all of us are called kings. Okay? And so what a king is able to do is to find out the truth. Right? A king, nothing, if the king wants something, the king gets it. Okay? So, so interestingly, the way Rabbi Levi explains this, um, and you see this tension that's about to be, I'm about to explain, this tension is very, very Jewish, what I'm, what I'm going to tell you right now. And so, and it's very emblematic of really all Torah study, and And understanding the truth, which is from the sixth day on, meaning from the creation of human beings on, we're allowed to investigate a matter. In other words, we can, it's the glory of a king to investigate, to find out, right? But we have to understand before human beings were created, meaning to say the initial moments of the creation of the universe and how everything formed, right? That's the glory of God to conceal. So in other words, on the one hand, we have to understand that we have an obligation and it's our honor even to investigate reality, but we also have to understand that there are certain things that we're never going to know. And that Tov Ma'od, the sixth day, the creation of the human being creates that dividing line between what's possible to know And what is ultimately concealed by God as an aspect of his infinite glory. Okay. So now, that's step one. Step two is, we look into the origins of creation anyway. (laughs) And that's what I'm saying is this very sort of Jewish tension. Is this recognition that we can't fully fathom. And we say that before we begin the study, we have to absolutely understand that we're never going to fully understand it. And that's, that's got to be the premise of our, our investigation. And that we accept God, we accept his Torah, and that's what it is. And we can't know. And now, let's try our best to know. <laughs> now that we know that we can't know, let's put all of our energy into knowing. And again, so, and, and, and we will derive amazing things. We will. Dry. I mean, if you think about what what science has found out about the early aspects of you know the creation of the universe, it's phenomenal. With the you know all the astronomy and astrophysics, it's absolutely amazing what we found out. But the more we know, the more we find out we don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm going to use these terms loosely, but you know this whole idea of. And maybe these are two completely separate things, so forgive me, it's a little bit inexact when I'm about to tell you, but it's more accurate than not. We've got this concept of dark energy or dark matter, and those might be two different things, but forgive me. Anyway, nonetheless, we don't really know what it is, and we seem to think that it's over 90% of the universe. So, so while we're... <laughs> While we're finding out amazing things, there's also, like, amazing things, amazing amounts of things that we absolutely don't know. So, so anyway. And it's that balance. It's that balance. And, you know, the, the way I've been thinking about it, I, I don't know if I shared this with you or not, is, you see, it's like... Um, when, when, when I was growing up, we had, this, um, we had this game called Time Bomb, right? And it was a toy. It was like a plastic uh, black ball, right? And it said Time Bomb on it. And then there was a red like top to it that you'd turn, and then it would tick, 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 tick. And it was basically a game of hot potato. And you'd throw it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you never knew when it was going to go off. And whoever had it when it went pop, right? Then they're out. And it was actually a very exciting game. And this is actually, I think, a, a good way of understanding us and God. You know, in, in, in a lot of different ways. Which is, and there are different applications of it knowing and not knowing, faith and effort. So let's put it in those two paradigms for for the moment, which is, on the one hand, we have to say, God, you run absolutely everything, and everything is in your power, I want this certain thing, okay? So, so to speak, we throw the time bomb to God, and God says, fantastic, now you do the effort, and he throws it back to us, and then we do some effort, but God forbid we should think. That, you know what, I'm really running the show. So in the context of doing effort, I then have to, bless you, I then have to re-acknowledge amidst my effort, God, you're the one who does everything. And then we throw it back to God. And God says, absolutely, absolutely I do everything. You know, now the bull's back in your court. And he throws it back to us. And so even amidst our effort, we have to remind ourselves that it's God who's doing everything, but then we have to rededicate ourselves to actually doing it again. And so it goes back and forth and back and forth. And the one who, the if you don't throw the, the time bomb, then it goes off. You know, you're out. What do I mean by that? So if ultimately you hold on to it amidst doing your effort, or just in terms of just believing, and you cease to do effort, then it goes off, because it has to be this constant interplay of direct effort, total belief, and then a refreshing of total belief within your effort. So let me put it another way. There's this same interplay, the same game of time bomb, that goes on between understanding that we're absolutely never going to know, and the imperative to absolutely not stop asking questions, and dedicate ourselves to absolutely knowing. You know, so we can't stop learning. So we can't ultimately just throw up our hands and go, I'm never going to know, whatever it is. No, we have to keep on learning. But amidst our learning, we can't think, oh, now I know. Now I know. So back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So this is expressed... This duality, this tension, if you will, is expressed in terms of Rabbi Levy's explanation of the word, it's very good. Meaning to say it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of a king, right, to uncover the truth. So, with that in mind, acknowledging that there are certain things that we can never know, we now go further into the mysteries. Okay? Now... I saw one thing that I, I, really, I really loved, and I want to share that, which is on this word Vayichulu. Now Vayichulu is, is a very big word in the Torah. It's the, um, it's the first word of the seventh day of creation. So in other words, this is now introducing the finishing of the world. So it's a very important word, because It's at this point that Shabbos kicks in, which is, is, it says, God worked on the first six days and rested on the seventh. And yet, it's very mysterious what happened on the seventh day, because seemingly, the seventh day is all the work was already done, and yet the seventh day is part of the totality of creation. So in other words, if the work is already done, why are you counting... The seventh day. So, so this is a great source of discussion In all, of all the sages, have all poured their minds into understanding what actually happened on the seventh day. So one of the explanations is that God did create something on the seventh day. He created rest. And that that was a creation in and of itself. Okay, that's, that's a very interesting idea. Another idea is that... Um, On on the seventh day, God implanted creation with a soul. That creation itself, that's what Shabbos is. It's actually, it's the soul of creation. So, there are all sorts of interesting ideas of what happened on the seventh day exactly. But, it begins with this word, Vayahulu And it's translated as, as completed. And God completed his work. And when you make Kiddush Friday night, you raise the Kiddush cup, and the first thing that you say is, Vayichulu, you, you, you repeat this passage. So this passage has, you know, we're dealing with this word Vayichulu all the time, really. On a weekly basis, we're dealing with this word. So it's, it's, it's interesting to investigate it a little bit deeper, and I'm going to bring you something from the Medrash Rabbah now from it, which is a little bit scary, actually, it's a little bit scary, but it's very honest. So, you know, let's just go for it. So, uh, hmm, what happened here? So, uh, well, I just had the page. I wanted to quote you the exact uh, Hebrew, but um, I'll just uh, quote you the English instead. So, so uh, it's translated as uh, uh, kalu." I think I'm saying the word right there. But it actually means to destroy. So, this is, oh, well, <laughs> it's very different from finishing up, isn't it? <laughs> to destroy? What's going on? And they say, well, you know, the, the rabbis say something very Interesting slash alarming that there was a real negative impact on creation itself and on the cosmos, and I'll go into this a little bit more, on the cosmos themselves from us eating from the Eitz from the Tree of Knowledge. And that actually put it a level of destruction into the world. And that's what's being referenced by Vayichulu. That God completed, but it also means destroyed. And what do they mean by that exactly? Now listen to this. Because this is something that I think that we can all relate to. You see, after we ate from the tree of knowledge, we left the Garden of Eden. But by the way, you should know, the very first Shabbos, God took us back into the Garden of Eden. And we spent the first Shabbos in the Garden of Eden. That's that's important to know. Okay? And then it was only after Shabbos that we really started living outside of the Garden of Eden. And from that, you understand that even amidst exile, because we had already been, so to speak, kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and then were brought back into the Garden of Eden for Shabbos, that even to this day, Shabbos is an aspect of the Garden of Eden. And in fact, we say that it's a miniature of olam Ba, of the world to come. Because if you think about it, just on a very basic level, besides the tremendous light that Shabbos, that the the fabric of the day is invested with even more light than the other days of the week, there is this heavenly aspect to Shabbos. But aside from these sort of like more spiritual uh, aspects of Shabbos, you know, in the Garden of Eden, we didn't really have to work. Everything was sort of like laid out for us. And on Shabbos, we do all of our shopping before Shabbos right? Everything is prepared for us, all the cooking is, is done in advance. So when Shabbos, when the day arrives, we arrive, so to speak, to a set table. And so in that aspect, even on a, on a very mundane level, there really is like a, a very tangible Garden of Eden quality to Shabbos. We're wearing our finest clothes, we don't work, we're not answering the phone, we're not, we're not involved in the mundane aspects of life. Which really is a bit of a paradise, you know. It is in, in a very real way. You know, uh, Rabbi Pesach Krohn. He's a very big rabbi. Very just one of my favorites. Um, uh, he he gave a bit of advice that I heard, and actually we we were doing this not not me, not me, my wife, but so so it was funny to hear him sort of extol a practice that. We were already doing, and so I could really appreciate what he was saying, because I knew it was true. Which is, our Shabbos table is set uh, in the early afternoon, in the early part of the day. And so you have a white tablecloth, and you have the Shabbos dishes, and you have the glasses, and you have usually the flowers are there on the table, and it lends this atmosphere for the entire day you just like walk you can't walk past the table without sort of doing a double take and going Shabbos is coming like look what's look what's awaiting us you know and um, you know Friday night we, we the, the person who helps us out in the house doesn't doesn't leave before the, t- the table is set for lunch the next day so when you wake up the next morning you see this like amazing set table and, and there it is, you know, so it really creates an atmosphere of Shabbos in, in, in a very beautiful way. I really recommend it if you can if you can do it. I, I've seen the effect in my own life. It, it, it's it's very subtle, but it's it's very real. Um, so anyway. So anyway, even after we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which symbolizes, which is the essence of exile, we went back in for that first Shabbos. And to this day, when Shabbos comes, we're back in the Garden of Eden. So that has mirrored itself throughout history. Now, let's get back to this idea of destruction. What actually was destroyed? So time, time was kind of destroyed. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Okay, and I'm just quoting from the Medesh Rabbah right now. This is not some kind of 21st century, you know, physics interpretation of the Torah. These are the rabbis from 2,000 years ago, or more, whatever, explaining how the nature of time got altered by our actions. Something very interesting. It says, and remember, the the ancients were great astronomers. You know, that's the earliest science that we basically mastered, okay? Or made huge advances on relative to our technology um so so the, the 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 rav compares it to a king who comes to a town and the subjects of this town really please the king and so as a result the king wants to do, so, do something really nice for them so he arranges chariot races for them like really entertaining Chariot races. Okay? And then the subjects do something to kind of turn off the king. And so he still has chariot races, but they're not as good anymore. <laughs> so the rabbis, and think of just how beautiful this imagery is, compare the path of the constellations and of the stars to chariots racing in the sky. Amazing parallel, right? And it says that when we found favor with the king, meaning to say, before we ate from the tree of knowledge, the chariots, the solar system, time itself was zipping by. Okay? And then after we ate, the chariot race, there were still chariot races, right? The solar system is still working, but it's going much more slowly. And less entertainingly. Like, interestingly, they're hitting this, this word of, like, tying into somehow our happiness on some level. So they give a, 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 a proof, which is a fascinating proof, and it will make this idea more concrete. Now, there are many different interpretations of what the actual fruit from the tree of knowledge was. Okay? There's a a lot of different ways of understanding it. There's even an interpretation that it was actually wheat, by the way. And how they understand wheat to be a fruit and everything like that and why it was the tree of knowledge, that's that's kind of a fascinating side topic. Um, You can look that up on your own. Um, But nonetheless, nonetheless, Um, one of the main understandings is that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was actually a fig. And probably the, the, Rashi brings this, the the argument for saying that it was a a fig tree is that when Adam and Chava, when Adam and Eve covered themselves, when they realized they were naked and had this degree of self-consciousness that they didn't have before, it says that they covered themselves with a fig leaf. Well, where are you getting... The fig leaf from, if not from a fig tree, do you understand? So just through simple deduction, it must have been a fig tree. That must have been the fruit. Okay, that's 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 one understanding. Okay, but let's go with that. Okay, so they say that there's a certain type of fig, a white fig. It says that it actually takes this fruit actually takes three years to ripen, and now let's um let's fully understand the implications of that that this that this fig takes 3 years to ripen okay so let's go back a little bit uh adam has been created and the first moments of the first person are so beautiful so beautiful and instructive in terms of what god's relationship to us is okay so we have to Put ourselves in Adam's, well, he wasn't wearing shoes, but, (laughs) right? Into, imagine yourself to be Adam at this moment, okay? Now, everyone imagines the Garden of Eden as like, I don't know, like Hawaii or something. Like it was just lush and beautiful and just greenery everywhere. Not the case. Not the case, okay? I don't know what was there. And it may have been barren. It may have been barren. Okay? Uh, In fact, I've been looking for a source to support that it was barren. And this seems to be it. This is the most concrete thing that I found, that it was barren in the the Garden of Eden. Okay? Now it says, and here's why everyone is confused about this. Because you say, well, wait a second. The Garden of Eden is barren and the human being is there. What, What are you talking about? But you'll see, it says... The reason why everyone gets confused is I think it's on the third day, maybe it's the fourth day, I'm not sure, but it says that God created you know herbs and you know trees and all these things, right? So it says it before the sixth day. So what are you telling me that on the sixth day everything's barren? Because if you look in the Gomorrah and Rashi brings it, that all of the vegetation was right below the ground. So it had been created, but it existed below the ground. Okay? So, so Adam is created and he's standing in the Garden of Eden and somehow this is his first moments, right? His first moments of consciousness. He prays that there should be rain. Now how did he know to pray that there should be rain? How, how would he know that there's such a thing as rain? these are all fantastic questions, and I haven't got a ready great answer for you. So but but it's that's worth investigating some more. Anyway, Adam prays that there should be rain, God then brings rain, and rocketing out of the ground comes what we now know to be the Garden of Eden. Like can you imagine? So in other words in other words, let's just look for our own lives. For our own lives. Understanding our own, because look, you know, first, what, what do they say in the business world? You don't have a, you never have a second chance to make a first impression. Right? We all know just from our own lives, the importance of a good first impression. Okay? So don't you think God knows? Who created, who created first impressions except God? So don't you think God wants to make a good first impression with the first human being that he's created? as an act of love. So how does God introduce himself? First, there's a perceived lack. Right? Because he, Adam is praying. I mean, this is my interpretation. There must be, because why is he praying unless he wants something that he doesn't have? Right? Or maybe he wants it for God, for the, beauty and glorification of God. I don't know what his intentions are. But there's, he feels some desire to pray, which means that there's something that he doesn't have that he wants, on some level. Right? I mean, that's just one aspect of prayer. Prayer is really communion with the divine. It's not just asking for things. It's not just begging. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is just this deep level of what we call debakus, of cleaving to God, right, in the most passionate way. But nonetheless, there is this Cleaving, and there is a request that coincides with this cleaving that's going on right now. And then, all of a sudden, Adam gets his prayer answered instantly in the most dramatic way. So again, first impressions, what's the first thing that God is telling us? I reach out to me, I hear your prayers, and I respond to them. I mean, can you imagine a more empowering moment than let there be rain and all of a sudden the rain comes and you see the results of your prayers in front of you that moment and it's the Garden of Eden, right? This isn't the Bronx that springs up, you know? Yeah, this is the, it's, you know it's good. It's really good. So, so anyway... So this tree, this fig tree, takes three years for its, for its fruit to ripen. And yet you see, bang, the tree comes up and there's the ripened fruit. So as a result, you see that the nature of time is going incredibly fast. And if you wanted to be really scientific about it, you could maybe make a calculation of how long you imagine that prayer was. Versus three years. In other words, perhaps, perhaps, I'm just speculating right now, there's a correlation between several seconds equaling three years to be made. So you see, and maybe that's another way of understanding the age of Adam. It's certainly 1,000% a way of understanding why we can understand absolutely in a Torah context that the world is billions of years old. Remember, the counting of the Jewish calendar, when it says it's 5772, 5772 years old, that is not the age of the universe. No one, not even the most, you know, ultra-Orthodox, whatever, rabbi is going to tell you that we say that that's the age of the universe. That, because time started when human beings were born. Okay, now you can have your own questions about that, and that's fine. But, nonetheless, the age of the universe itself is billions of years old. And there's no contradiction in terms of a Torah understanding for that. And here we see a basis of it from the Medrash, that the stars were zipping around like chariot races. Like really entertaining chariot races. Now, what happens once we eat from the tree? Time slows down. Time slows down. Things take longer. And that's an aspect of exile. That's an aspect of exile. Is this notion, and we've all felt it in our lives. Why is it taking so long? Why is it so hard? Why? And by the way, this is totally tied in with livelihood and money. Because it says one of, the, one of the things that 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 results from our eating from the tree is, it says that we'll make our living by the sweat of our brow. Meaning to say, this thing where there was just a prayer and the tree comes up with the fruit and it's like, bang! Like all of a sudden now it's like you got to dig and you got to plant and you got to wait and you got to hope it rains and pray for the rain and all of this stuff are all the results of a different world. And that's, coming, and that's coming to be explained that the Torah is saying that this happened with the word Vayichulu. Meaning to say after the sixth day was complete, when the seventh day came, on some aspect the world is finished. Because that's the classic understanding of Vayichulu, that God finished his work on the seventh day. That's how Vayikalu is translated. But the rabbis in the Medrash are saying, no, bayakalu that God destroyed, or that we destroyed, that man destroyed, whatever it was. And that, to a certain extent, was now factored into creation going forward. So, so things take longer. Things take longer. And And I thought to myself, well, how can you speed things up then? (laughs) You know, we don't want things to take longer. We want to speed things up. So it seems to me, and again, this is just my calculation. If by doing something wrong, we slow things down. Perhaps by doing something right, we speed things up. So maybe that's a maybe that's a lesson for us in our in our own lives. That to the extent that we can increase in, in, in acts of goodness, in acts of kindness, in, in spreading love, to the extent that we can do that, we can speed things up again. That, that, that if people are, are waiting for certain blessings, healing, or wives, or husbands, children, health, what, whatever it is, the, just the fixing of the world itself, to the extent that we're doing more goodness, more acts of kindness, things will speed up. And you know, one of the nicest things that anyone ever said to me, um, I was just kind of walking out of a store, and and I, I, I saw someone, and honestly, this this person is a, is a not, you know, as we'd say in a nice way, a hundred percent. You know, it's like a, a little bit off, and. Um, And she saw me and kind of like you know like kind of grabbed me kind of so to speak. I don't know if she just did it with her eyes, but I kind of felt it on my arms. But whatever it is, I was definitely stopped in my tracks. And I think I told her that it was my I think it was my birthday. I think it was. And she said to me, she said, I there are so many beautiful things God is waiting to give you. And I thought, oh man, I'm so glad you said that. I feel so good now. And, and you know, it's true. For all of us, no matter who you are, what you are, wherever you are in the spectrum of whatever, you, God is waiting to give you so many things, all of us, So many things. And so then the only question is, when? (laughs) Like if it's out there, if I'm going to hit it at some point, speed it up. (laughs) Speed it up. And so to the extent that we can, so to speak, if that's what slowed it down, if that's what slowed time down, let's speed it up. And I'll just uh, end with with one thought. I heard this from Rabbi Green, and it, it very much connects to, to uh, what we're talking about. You see, you know, the whole Torah is like microcosms, microcosms within microcosms. So one of the primary microcosms, and a microcosm is when you fit something very large into a small space. That's, that's what it is. So one of the most fundamental microcosms in the Torah is the account of the first seven days of creation. And the seventh day, which is Shabbos, means the Messianic era. Okay, we experience it as Shabbos. We experience an aspect of it every single week. But you should know the Messianic era has already been created. And that's what Shabbos means. In other words, the first six days, it says you work, and then you go into Shabbos. Right? And so that that has been implanted in creation from the very, very start. So... So understand the seventh day, not just to mean Shabbos, but to mean the era of perfection. Okay? Now, Arab Shabbos is that period when we're making our final preparations for Shabbos. So every Friday afternoon, every Friday, like like in many households, Thursday night is a big, you know, you go to the supermarket, you know. If you want to see a religious Jew in aisle five, go to a supermarket Thursday night. You'll, you'll catch one, you know. So it's like, <laughs> you know, that's, that's classically when people go and then they're cooking Friday, cooking Thursday night, whatever it is. They're preparing or they're cooking on Friday. They're getting ready on Friday. You make your run to the, to the dry cleaners or to whatever you need to do. Shoemaker, you're getting your shoe shines, whatever it is. You, you do what you need to do. And that's Arab Shabbos. And by the way, I heard something beautiful in the name of Rabbi um, Kamenetsky. He said that that thank God, like this is already, you know, he's been nifter for a number of years, but already he saw the turning point in terms of American Jewry. By the way, if you want to really hear an amazing statistic, they just published this right now in in a. Uh, They just did a a demographic kind of analysis, like a census type thing of New York Jews, okay? And what they reported was that 40% of all Jews in New York right now, which is one of the major Jewish centers in the world, 40% of all Jews in New York are Orthodox now. And then among the kids below a certain age, I don't know which age, below 12 or something like this, I'm not sure exactly, but among kids... It's 70%. So if you want to know where American jewelry is going, that's a very fascinating statistic. You've got kind of like, you know, like in rockets. You ever see rockets blast off and then like the bottom drops off and then another bottom drops off. And then meanwhile, the top part of the rocket just is soaring through the sky. It's a little bit for better, for worse. What's going on in terms of the American Jewish community? You know, the people who are getting into it are definitely getting into it. Torah knowledge is spreading and opening up like in no time, and listen to me carefully, for thousands of years. What's going on right now in terms of the explosion and expansion of Torah learning has not taken place for a very, very long time. Okay. At the same time, though, Massive assimilation, massive assimilation, massive, and both of these things are going on simultaneously right now, and they're measuring them demographically in statistics. So, so anyway, so 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 Rabbi Kamenetsky said, "Thank God, the Jews of America have saved Shabbos," meaning to speak, we've. We, we now understand what Shabbos is. He says, but you know what hasn't been rescued yet? Arab Shabbos. And I, I, I'm paraphrasing what he said, I don't know what his exact words were. But there's this concept which we had in like Europe, for instance, and I'm sure other places in the world as well, which is the concept of Arab Shabbos, which is the idea that Shabbos is coming. You know, so the preparations that take place, and this sense of longing, and, and, and Yira even, that Shabbos is approaching, that, 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 that quite hasn't quite happened yet. And I'll, I'll tell you, give you a, a little bit of something in my own life. I've told you the story before, but just to kind of, to, to give it to you, if you remember, um, I shared with you, uh, when I found the sort of like, the secret matzah factory in the, in the forest, in the Kaskill's. I'm using the word secret loosely, but, you know, you know, there weren't any signs, matzahs being baked over here, you know, in the middle of the woods, and I just kind of was driving looking for a mikveh, and I found this building where they were making matzahs right before Shabbos, they were the Vishnitz Hasidim, right? And um, I was able to get these matzahs being baked right before Yontif, right before Pesach, which are really special, it's, it's holy, you know? And uh, every year I've been able to get these matzahs, you know, right beforehand, which is very special, really adds to the Seder and everything. Anyway, um, the way the Hasidim bake these matzahs is they get in their finest clothing. So you can imagine if you're on an assembly line dealing with flour and you've got like a long, black, beautiful silk garment, you don't want to be dealing with flour, right? So they've got... They're, they're, and they're, they're wearing their shtrymalach, their fur hats, and they've got their long black and, you know, dressed to the nines, you know, and and making matzah that way, because that's part of the glory of making the matzah, is that you're, you know, you, you really are treating it with a, a, regal, a regal, you know, attitude. Okay. So anyway, I was driving one of those guys back, and I'm, I don't know what I was wearing, but I can bet it was t-shirts, a, a, a t-shirt and jeans, you know. And I'm picking up the, the matzah. And the guy says to me very gently, he wasn't being obnoxious or sarcastic at all, he he asked me where I was from, and I told him Los Angeles. And he said, oh, you don't have Erev Pesach there, do you? <laughs> now, that's kind of a funny... That, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a funny thing to say, because Erev Pesach, just to translate, it just means... The time period, the eve of Pesach, or the time period before the holiday kicks in. So it's almost like saying, oh, you, oh you're from Los Angeles? You don't have 3 p.m. there, do you? <laughs> well, what do you mean? Of course we have 3 p.m. in Los Angeles. What are you talking about? But what he was talking about was this atmosphere, was this, this, this ritual of baking matzahs right before the holiday. Like, on all, everything that accompanies it, that's really of Pesach. Like, they don't enter into the holiday before they go through this process of Erev Pesach, of the moments before Pesach. And that's a whole different mindset. It's a different way of life. So there is another way of life, which is called Erev Shabbos, right? And Erev Shabbos is like, not just that you walk into Shabbos, but the, but the moments before Shabbos, the hours before Shabbos. I know a, a rabbi who said, now, who said that, you know what, before Shabbos, I've taken a nap because I want to be rested for Shabbos. I don't want to be tired on Shabbos. And I sit down at a table, at a set table, and I have a glass of tea before I go to shul. Now, most houses, just so you don't get depressed, (laughs) are mad scrambles, (laughs) filled with choruses of yelling. (laughs) What do you mean you didn't go to the dry cleaners? What am I supposed to wear? (laughs) You know, so... now. I read, I think it may have been Rabbi Nachman, I'm not sure, that this is a known thing throughout Jewish history, that there are fights before Shabbos. And the reason why is because we say, listen, we say Shabbat Shalom, which means, you know, it's a blessing of peace on Shabbos. Shalom means peace, right? So, because this this, um, level, this spiritual gift of peace is coming down, Remember, all spirituality has laws of physics attached to it. There's always, at all times, and at every spiritual level that a person encounters, there will always be an equal and opposite spiritual force to counteract what's going on. Always. So therefore, since peace is about to enter into the world, so the Yitzhahara, so to speak, drums up argumentation Beforehand. And that's normal and natural. And you just have to be aware of it. Because basically once you know this secret, you will be able to not accept the invitation to argue. (laughs) Which will always be offered to you before Shabbos. Don't engage in the fight. It's a trap. It's a trick. It's a trap and a trick. Just understand that that's just part of the fabric of the cosmos, if you will. That, that there will be an opportunity. You were cordially invited to argue with your wife or your husband. You know? Please, engage in this discourse. So the, it's just trying to ruin Shabbos. That's all that's going on. So you just, once you're aware of that, you'll avoid it, okay? Anyway, I'm still getting to the point that Rabbi Green said, which is this awesome point. So now that we understand what Arab Shabbos is, so, and now that we understand that the seventh day, right? Really means the messianic era. Okay? It means Shabbos, but it also means the era of perfection, which is destined for the world, which has already been created, which has been implanted within the world. Okay? Now that we know that, what is exile? What is exile? And so Rabbi Green said what God is doing, what all human history is, since the moment that we left the Garden of Eden, is God is extending Erev Shabbos. So in other words, on a very, very, very deep level, we're still within the sixth day of creation. And what God keeps on doing, and this is on some level, perhaps what the Medrash is hinting at when it's talking about the slowing down of time. Right? This is getting deep now, if you think about it. The slowing down of time is that God is extending the moments of the sixth day before the seventh day kicks in. And that's what these last several thousand years have been. It's all... We're all within the final hours. And now with this in mind, you can understand the teaching that Mashiach can come at any moment. Once we get it together, bang, we're in the seventh day. You understand? That's why it can come any moment. And that all of history... All the situations that we deal with in our own lives, all the challenges, all the problems, all the opportunities, all these things are just to get it right. God is giving us chance after chance after chance just to get it right. On an individual level, on a family level, on a parent-to-child level, on a husband-to-wife level, on a society-community-neighborhood level, on a national level, on a world level. There are a lot of different agendas. And if we can just kind of Get it in sync, boom, it happens, right? So, so maybe we'll stop here because my next thought's going to take twenty minutes. <laughs> we'll save that for we'll save that for another week. Um, but anyway. Uh, just, God should just bless us. God should just bless us. It's, it's, it's already been implanted in the world. You don't have to be afraid. And uh, we'll get there. Okay, have a great week.